Alrighty. Let's pray. Lord, as we just sang, now and forever we will confess Christ is our hope in life and in death. Lord, we thank you so much that we are a people who have hope. We have a hope, a confidence that our God will act in the future with certainty to make all things new, to raise us from the dead, and to usher in the fullness of the new creation that our hearts long for. Lord, that is our hope. A new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells, in which we will be with Jesus forever. And I pray that you would stir our hearts with longing for that eternal rest that is coming and that we enjoy even now through our Lord Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would be with me this morning in the words that I speak. May they be clear and helpful and that you would be our teacher as we um, seek to probe the depths of a beautiful theme in the Bible. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Okay, so this morning we're going to be tackling Daniel 9, verses 20 to 27 again, a second time. But this time, we're not going to be working through these verses directly. We're going to work through them indirectly. In other words, last week, I, I read through the verses carefully, one at a time. And if you have your, your handout that I gave you, or... I think Richard was passing them out. It's a sheet of paper that has Daniel 9, verses 24 to 27 printed on it with the translation that we used last week. And what I've done for you is something that we're actually not going to spend a lot of time going over today, just for you to read over yourself. But I've actually um, underlined in yellow the places there that are talking about Jesus, underlined in blue or highlighted in blue the places that are specifically talking about the destruction of the temple. And I believe I put in red um, some, other, some of the other connections there. So you can see the, the lines that I drew at the circles of places where Isaiah connects, where Daniel's actually cross-referencing Isaiah's famous chapter in Isaiah 53, where this Messiah who's a servant will die and <coughs> cut off the sins of the people. Uh, Daniel is quoting it, and he assumes we know these things. Um, he assumes we're... Soaking in the Bible like he is, and that we'll pick up on these hyperlinks. You know what a hyperlink is? The Bible has millions of them. A hyperlink is like in the internet where there's like a, a flashing blue uh, link that you click on, and it takes you to other places. The whole Bible is hyperlinked. You click on one verse, but it's hyperlinked to ten other texts in the Old Testament usually that it's pulling from. And the Old Testament does this even more than the New Testament. They, they're just obsessed with each other. This is They were people of the book, and they were all about the Messiah. So Daniel is referencing Isaiah, and we only, I only uh, pointed out a couple places, but uh, hopefully that's helpful to you as you read through it during the week. Okay, so we're going to come at Daniel 9 indirectly, and we're going to back up <coughs> to the very beginning of the Bible story some of the most important chapters in the Bible where it all gets started, Genesis 1 to 3. And we're going to get a running start as we head towards Daniel. And we're going to see how this pattern of seven-day creation described in Genesis, it sets the stage for being able to understand and interpret what Daniel 9 means when he talks about the time period we looked at last week that you see in verse 24. The 77s, that are decreed for the people. What is so special about seven? And we'll try to unpack that this morning so that by the end, the number seven will make a lot more sense to you, I hope. So, this morning's message, we're going to have three points. First, we're going to look at the seven days of creation in Genesis. Um, second, we're going to look at patterns of seven in Israel's calendar. Patterns of seven. 
And third, we'll look at Daniel's 77s and the ultimate seven, the jubilee that Jesus brings. So, seven days in creation. That's the first one. Um, Gary, would you be able to click to the next slide? I believe I've got it up behind us. Okay. In the beginning of the Bible story, which starts in the beginning, the God of all, the only creator, the eternal being who created the universe, who created all things, visible or invisible, whether rulers or powers or authorities, all things created by him, he brought everything we see around us to existence from nothing. In Genesis 1, verse 1, we read, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That first verse is a summary verse. It sums up, God made everything. He made the world. Then the text backs up and starts organizing God's creative work into a carefully ordered seven-day work week. Six-day work week, followed by the rest day, the stop day. <clears throat> Verse 2 tells us the state of the land as God began his creative work. As God rolls up his sleeves to begin speaking creation into existence, the land is covered with waters, inhospitable to life, Genesis 1, verse 2. And God says, let there be light. And there was light. What day of the week is this when God says that? First day. What day is the first day? Sunday. When does light split darkness in the day? The beginning, right? In the dawn. The dawn of the day. This is a sunrise. It's the dawn of Sunday. First day of the week. And at the dawning of the first day of the week, who brings the light? The light of the world. Who is the light of the world? It's God. This is the light of God's glory. Piercing the darkness of the chaos. God is the light of the dawn. That means, that's a big deal when we get to Jesus. The priority. Maybe your mind's going there. I am the light of the world. All that follows is a carefully organized summary of God's work week. In a six-day pattern, God forms spaces, forming light and darkness, the categories of light and dark, the sky and the sea, and the land, the fertile earth. And then he fills them with the lights to govern the day and the night. He fills the sea with birds and the air with birds and fish. And on day six, he fills what he made on day three, he fills the land with land animals, forming spaces, filling spaces. What day doesn't have a parallel? Day seven, the stop day, the Sabbath. Sabbath means stop in Hebrew, the Shabbat day, the stop day. God, Genesis 2, 2 to 3, says this. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. Completed. It's complete. So on the seventh day, he stopped, rested, stopped from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, he rested, or literally stopped, from all the work of creating that he had done. Um, here we have God setting apart this day above all days. This Saturday, this seventh day, day seven, as a blessed day, a holy day, a sanctified day, set apart to the Lord, where he stopped his creative work. Gary, you can just pop from that slide now to the next one, and it'll be blank. Yeah, that's right. I don't have any more slides today. Uh, I was thinking about making a few, but I ran out of time. All right. So from the seventh day, at the bottom of that slide, stands forth from the story of Genesis as a day of completeness, a day of wholeness. From the seventh day on, so from that day forward, Adam and Eve were to rule creation under God's blessing in ways that honored the Lord. Literally, this is the charge God gave them in Genesis 2 verse, 2 verse 15. God says to Adam and Eve, Genesis 2, 2 verse 15, 
to work and keep the garden. Um, different translations might have different ways of bringing out those words. Work and keep, to serve and to guard is one translation. This phrase is a hyperlink phrase. You click on it, and it shows up somewhere else in the writings of Moses. In other words, work and keep, those two words. Where does it show up? Well, one place that it shows up is in Numbers chapter 3, verses 7 to 8, and other places in Numbers and Leviticus where it's talking, Moses is talking about priests in the temple of Israel, in God's temple. They are to serve and to guard, to work and to keep the temple. Numbers 3, 7, and 8. And this was a work that the priests of Israel were to keep doing. Jesus makes a big deal of this. Maybe you might remember the story in the Gospels where the Pharisees are saying, you're working on the Sabbath. And he says, well, the priests work on the Sabbath. They work on the stop day. They work day and night. Because work in God's presence is not work. It's not the toil that came after the fall. Work under God's smile, in God's presence, as a priest, is a blessing. God blessed the start day. It's a complete day. Temple work is different than work under the curse. The priests work, but their work in God's presence, under his smile, with him meeting all their needs, it's worship and it's rest. And it's what we will enjoy for all eternity in what Eden and what later temples only pointed to, the new creation that will fill the whole earth. So, like the priests of old, there is no indication that in the text that Adam and Eve, this first priest and his wife, were, were supposed to stop their normal pattern of serving and working in the garden every six days and rest on the Sabbath. There is no, there's no Shabbat command in Genesis 1 and 2. Creation is complete there, full. God stops creating. All that was left was to work and to keep the garden, to enjoy the rest, the completion that God had brought about in days 1 to 6, serving in this garden temple day and night forever. God's people living in God's place under God's rule spreading that blessing to the ends of the earth forever and ever. That was the vision of Genesis 1. Fill the earth, subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air. Take God's image and make it go global. What do you find in temples in the ancient world? We could preach a whole sermon on this. But you find images, right? Images of the gods. What has God set up in his little Eden temple? His image. This is what I look like. This is where I rule. Adam, a priestly image of God and his wife, serving God and guarding the temple, just like the later priests of Israel were to do in the little replica of the Garden of Eden. The place you meet God. The tabernacle of the temple of Israel. Okay. And they would work, even on the stock day. Because work, just like Adam and Eve, working in God's presence, was rest. <coughs> One indication in the text that this seventh day stands forth as a very unique type of day. All the other days, day one, and there was evening and there was morning, day one. And there was evening and there was morning, day two. And there was evening and there was morning. You see it all the way up to six, but on seven, it doesn't say that. It doesn't say there is evening and there is morning, the seventh day. This is, I believe, the author's way of saying this is a, this is a unique day. It doesn't mean that the sun didn't set on that day. This is a symbolic day. A day that now creation is rest is into its fullness, its completion. It's reached its goal, and God is resting from his creative work in his very good creation. And Adam and Eve are to join that rest. There's no work to do left. There's working and keeping the garden, but no more creative work. But then something went tragically wrong. Rebellion plunged Adam and Eve into painful toil. They're driven from this rest. The rest of the stop day was broken and replaced with painful toil. 
fruit replaced with thistles and thorns, life replaced by death. Very good was replaced with cursed is the ground because of you. Blessing replaced by curse. The age of rest is over. The new world is shattered. What do you need if the old, this old new world becomes shattered? You need a new creation. You need the world to head towards another seven. Another complete rest day. A future new creation. And ultimately this is a new creation that the Bible says will be brought to us by the Genesis 3.15 victor over the snake, over the devil, the one who made everything go bad. He will, this coming conqueror, will reverse everything the devil brought about. If you beat the devil, you beat everything he brought into the world. Death, curse, rebellion, sickness, disease, everything will be reversed when this coming seed comes. Ultimately, this is Jesus, the conquering seed of the woman, the light of the world, who will come and pierce the darkness. But, before Jesus comes, in the years leading up to Jesus, this longing to reach rest, this journey to go back to the, the rest that was lost on day seven, it continues on with the family of Abraham, the Israelites. Out of all the nations of the earth in Genesis 12, God picks one man, Abraham, and blesses him and promises him that his seed, his offspring is going to be this Genesis 3.15 seed who's going to come. And this seed is going to be the one that brings God's blessing that Adam lost back to all the nations of the earth. Now, we're going to skip over a lot. We're going to hop over to Abraham's kids, the nation of Israel. In many ways, the, the whole story of the nation of Israel, okay, Israel's whole history, like how would you tell your history lesson, your family's history lesson? Maybe you came, maybe your family was immigrants that came here from Ireland or somewhere else. How would you tell the history of your family? Well, the history of the nation of Israel, their whole history is the symbolic journey of a nation, a whole nation, who's corporately God's new son, his firstborn son. He calls them that in Exodus 4, verse 22 and 23. Israel is my firstborn son. And it's like Israel as a nation is a corporate Adam, a new Adam figure. Things didn't go so well with one guy, let's try a whole nation. And they set out on their journey out of the darkness and slavery in Egypt. Remember, Egypt was plunged into darkness. And what happens? They come out of the darkness. They go through the chaos waters of the Red Sea on dry land. Where they emerge alive on the other side. On their way to an Eden-like land where they're going to find their rest. So they're headed towards a seventh-day rest. Having come through the waters, the Genesis 1-type waters, on dry land, which appears on the third day, Israel goes through the waters of the Red Sea. It's like a new creation is happening. And they emerge on the dry land, out of the Red Sea, and they come out, and where are they headed? They're headed to a rest. A promised land rest. Psalm 95, for example, explicitly calls the promised land God's rest. A rest that he says in Psalm 95, the rebellious Israelites who rebelled against him on the way were not allowed to enter into because of their rebellion. So I'll say it again. The story of Israel is the story of a new Adam's journey back to a new creation land. Of rest. It's Adam going back to Eden, the land filled with fruit, filling, flowing with milk and honey, where God is king. And on that journey, they make an important stop at Mount Sinai and they receive instructions, their tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The law that would mark them as a people absolutely obsessed with the number seven. 
Seven is everywhere in the books of Leviticus, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And the reason is because Israel is a people who are to be consumed by a hope in the seventh day rest. Their whole lives are to be lived in anticipation of a coming seventh day new creation rest that everyone, all of us, desperately needs. The rest in God's presence that humanity lost in the garden. Even the promised land of Canaan that the Israelites got would only be actually a taste, a picture, a tangible taste of that future rest. So, that's what we'll look look at next. And no, we're just barely scratching the surface of these themes. But there's, we're going to look at patterns of seven in Israel. Okay, So if you have your Bible, I'd encourage you to turn to Deuteronomy 5. Deuteronomy 5. This occurs in Exodus 20 as well, but I'm going to read from Deuteronomy 5, verse 12, where we're going to read about the Sabbath. Like I said, woven all throughout the daily life of the nation of Israel... There were patterns of seven. They're obsessed with seven. And we only have time to focus on three. So the first pattern was that Israel was to work only six days a week, and then they'd have a stop day, the seventh day. They were to rest, a Sabbath day to the Lord. Deuteronomy 5, 12 to 15. Observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. As Yahweh your God has commanded you, six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a stop day, a Sabbath day to the Lord your God. On it you shall do no you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son nor your daughter, nor your Well, at least we could let our slaves work. No. Nor your male or female servant. Well, our animals we do no. Nor your ox, your donkey, nor any of your animals. Um, nor any foreigner. We got our non-Jewish relatives visiting us for the week. Well, they can go out and get the groceries. No. None of them. Residing in your towns. Here's the purpose. So that your male and female servants may rest. Rest for slaves. As you do. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt. And that Yahweh your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, Yahweh your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. So four things to notice about the stop day in these verses. First, it was a holy day. A day set apart to the Lord. It was Yahweh's day. He owns it. This reminds us of the blessing that God spoke in Genesis 1, or Genesis 2, over the seventh day. God blessed it and called it holy. To be holy means to be unique, set apart, owned, claimed by God. It's a unique and holy day, not just another work day. Second, notice in verse 14 that it was not just a stop day for Israel. It was a stop day for everyone connected to Israel in any way. Even their slaves. Third, Notice that just the next thing is that the purpose of stopping, verse 14, the purpose of stop was rest. Sometimes, um, like in Genesis 2, our English translations will translate the Lord rested, um, which that's okay. Uh, He rested from his creative work, but there's two actually two different words for the word stop and the word rest. And they're related. When you stop, then you can rest. And here we have both those words. Uh, um, you're to stop Shabbat, you're to Sabbath so that you can enter into a state of rest you don't stop then you don't rest fourth and finally notice the reason the logic behind the stop day see the therefore in verse 15 therefore God commanded you to observe the Sabbath what's the therefore therefore why is it there right well the answer is right in the beginning of the verse The reason God commanded them and their slaves to observe the stop day was because they were rescued from slavery in Egypt. They had been brought out of the darkness and death and slavery of Egypt, and they'd been created as a new nation going through the waters on dry land, just like the the land was brought forth from the waters on the first day, on the third day of creation. They were brought through as a nation. It's like 
A new creation is coming forth from death to life, and they end up on the other side. The waters that brought death to the Egyptians brought them to the, on their way to the promised land. And now, as a nation of freed slaves, they were to observe the stop day, a day of rest when slavery ends. For one day, for one day, they get a break from the curse, the toil of the ground that came in Genesis 3, pointing towards an ultimate day, an ultimate day when all the slaves would be set free. Okay, the second pattern woven into Israel's calendar that we'll look at now briefly was the sabbatical year. Listen to the words of Moses found in Leviticus 25, 1-7. Leviticus 25, you can go there if you want, it's the third book of the Bible. Really, it's the third chapter of the first book of the Bible, which is a five-part book, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. One book, five chapters, big, big book. And the foundation for everything that comes after. Leviticus 25, 1-7. Yahweh said to Moses at Mount Sinai, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, When you enter the land I am giving you, going to give you, the land itself must observe a stop day to the Lord. A Sabbath. For six years sow your fields, and for six years prune your vineyards and gather your crops. But in the seventh year, the land is to have a year of Sabbath rest, a Sabbath to the Lord. Do not sow your fields or prune your vineyards. Do not reap what grows of itself or harvest the grapes of your unattended vines. The land is to have a year of rest. Whatever the land yields during the Sabbath year will be food for you. For yourself, for your male and female servants and hired worker and temporary resident while living among, who live among you. As well as for your livestock and the wild animals in your land. Whatever the land produces may be eaten. So notice just a couple things here. Every six years, the land is to have a stop year, a rest year. The land itself is to rest. And in that year... They were to let their fields lay fallow and abstain from any toil, work of cultivation. Remember what God said to Adam? By the sweat of your brow, you will bring fruit from the ground, right? They stopped that for a whole year. The new Adam lets the land rest. Anything they ate would come from things gleaned off the land much like Adam and Eve would have been able to harvest fruit in the garden without the painful toil of the curse on the ground. Now the third and final pattern of seven I want to mention is the year of Jubilee. You can look down just a few more verses in Leviticus 25. Moses' words, Leviticus 25, verses 8 to 12, count off seven Sabbath years. Seven times seven years. Years. Sound a little bit like Daniel? So that the seven stop years amount to a period of 49 years. Seven times seven is 49, right? Uh, then have the trumpet sounded everywhere on the tenth day of the seventh month, on the day of atonement, which you read all about in Leviticus 16. It's the center of the book where the high priest goes and purifies the temple. And Sound the trumpet throughout your land. So on the day of purification, on the day the sacrifice is made to purify the sins of the land, on that day, blow a trumpet. The Hebrew word for jubilee is related to the word for trumpet blowing. It sounds the same. It's a trumpet day. And consecrate the 50th year, verse 10, and proclaim liberty, freedom, throughout the land to all its inhabitants. So on the day atonement's made, freedom, far and wide, everybody free. It shall be a jubilee for you. Each of you is to return to your family property and to your own clan. The 50th year shall be a jubilee, a trumpet day for you. Do not sow and do not reap what grows of itself or harvest the untended vines. For it is a jubilee and is to be holy for you. Eat only what is taken directly from the fields. Now this chapter 25 goes on in great detail to describe a list of other things that would happen on this great 
year of Jubilee. All slaves would be released, no matter who they were. All their children born into slavery would be released. Anyone who'd gone bankrupt and had to sell themselves into slavery, that was their form of bankruptcy. Um, somebody has to pay the cost. In America, you know, who, who pays the cost, ultimately? Well, I guess inflation does. You know, the banks just print more money. I, you know, but there, you if you ran out of money, what was your last asset? Yourself. But not on the 50th year. Freedom. Release. Release is the same word in the Bible for forgiveness. Forgiveness means release. You let people go in your heart. You, you won't make them pay for what they did or what they owe you or how they hurt you. You forgive. The Jubilee release year was intended by God to be like a nationwide reenactment of Israel's exodus from slavery in Egypt. Freedom from Egypt. And every 50 years they would reenact that. They were a people who'd been released by God from slavery to Egypt and from the darkness of Egypt to the light of the promised land. And so they were to be a people marked by releasing others. No more slaves. No more debt. All the land in Israel was to go back to the original tribal boundaries established by God in the book of Joshua. And all of this pointed to an ultimate day. All of this restoration on the 50th year was all just pointing forward to an ultimate day of jubilee when all humans everywhere would finally be released from everything that resulted from the curse of sin and death. A jubilee that would bring the blessing Adam lost back to his whole family, not just the Israelites. In the seed that's coming Adam, all nations will be blessed. Now, I want to just pause for a minute before we move to Daniel. And I just want to imagine living in that time, what that would have been like. If you were poor or suffering in any way, you would live your whole life, your whole life, in hope of the stop, of the stop year, of jubilee, of hearing that trumpet. And when that trumpet finally sounded, you'd go crazy. Release. Freedom. I'm not a slave anymore. I had no more debts. All the bad choices my parents made to lose our land. All the hardships we went through from that famine. Where we had to sell everything we owned. We get all our grandpa's land back. We can farm it again. Back then, land was the most precious of all assets. The asset above all others. What about the jubilee for those who were wealthy? They had the most to lose on the jubilee year. The jubilee would have provided an incentive to be content with what you had and not to amass Great wealth and houses and lands and slaves. Because, guess what? 11 years and it's gone. All of it. So you better not build up a huge empire system where you've got like all the lands and where you depend on that rich person. Jubilee encouraged Israelites to hold their wealth with open hands. Now the great tragedy of Israel's history was that this never happened, from what we can tell. Never. None of it. Not only was Israel notorious for refusing to keep the weekly stop days, but they didn't even keep the Sabbath, they didn't keep the Sabbath years, and they by no means kept the year of Jubilee. That's why the exile was 70 years long. In Daniel. We read that at the beginning of Daniel chapter 9. Israel was kicked out of their land for every one, one year, for every stop year that they neglected to keep. So 490 years of patterns of seven is 70 years of refusing to trust the Lord. 
Because ultimately trusting the Lord is what the Sabbath was all about. And that's the final thing I want to point out briefly before we move to Daniel 9. The reason that God wove the number seven into every inch of Israel's life together, and we are just scratching the surface. We didn't go into all their feasts and how those were woven around the number seven. The reason is because he wanted his people to never forget what they were saved for. The reason they were rescued from slavery in Egypt and from the darkness there was ultimately that they would be restored to the rest of the seventh day that Adam lost in the garden. And the Jubilee year was ultimately the biggest taste that they would get of this hope of seven-day, seventh-day rest and restoration. They were to live all their lives in hope of the seventh-day rest. Every week they worked, they were to wait for Saturday, the day of completion, when they could stop for a day and rest and worship God in the obedience of faith, trusting Him that while their hands were still, He would provide for their needs. Failure to stop was failure to trust in the power of the Lord to provide for the nation, for what they needed. That's often why idolatry went hand in hand with Sabbath breaking. They stopped trusting Yahweh and they trusted in other idols. And when you stop trusting Yahweh, you by all means aren't going to keep the Sabbath. Not sowing for a whole year, that takes faith. Radical faith. And that was to mark the nation, but they were an unbelieving nation. They needed help. So now let's look we're ready to look at Daniel 9. And here's where you may want to have that handout available. Just to refresh your brain about what the text says. Remember when the year of Jubilee would occur? Every seven sevens. Every seven cycles of seven years, which brings us to the point three this morning. Seventy sevens in the ultimate Jubilee of Jesus. In Daniel, we read that following Israel's return to the land of Babylon... After that 70-year exile, there's 70 more sevens decreed for them. Seven sevens plus, these are highlighted in red, seven sevens plus 62 sevens, after which the Messiah, Jesus, this anointed coming leader, is cut off. He goes under the covenant curses, but not for his own sins. Not for himself. And in the final seven, the one seven, the Messiah would make a strong covenant with many. That's Daniel 9, verse 27. He would do this right after he's cut off in verse 26. This indicates that he doesn't stay dead because how do you make a covenant with many if you're dead? And by the end of this whole period, this complete period, Daniel 9, verse 24 says, sin will be over. And eternal righteousness will be brought in. Righteousness of the ages. This, friends, is what humanity has been longing for, waiting for. It is what the Sabbath and what every year of Jubilee were all pointing to. It was to be the longing of every human heart. An end of rebellion and sin. And eternal righteousness. The final seven. Daniel's 70th seven is an ultimate jubilee year. If a jubilee comes at the end of every seven sevens, what would come at the end of 70 sevens? Nothing less in Daniel's vision, I believe, than the restoration of the whole world. The ultimate seven has arrived with the coming of Messiah. And his final seven, his final week, is nothing less than the ultimate new creation week. The first creation week was a seven, right? The last creation week, the final seven, is a seven. Now, not seven literal days, but a symbolic seven. Jesus kicks off this new creation seven on a Sunday, though. A literal Sunday. 
by his literal resurrection from the dead. And this week will end with the final Sabbath rest, the rest that Jesus is enjoying even now in the new creation that he's bringing. He has a resurrected body. And one day we will all reach this new creation. But even now, we are living, friends, in the age of Jubilee. And we are waiting for that last trumpet to sound at the end of time to usher in the final release that we are waiting for. The release of all bodies everywhere from the grave. Those who have trusted in Christ to eternal life and those who have rebelled and continue to rebel against him to banishment from his kingdom forever. And that is what we will look at at the end of Daniel, chapter 12, where Daniel talks about this final seven, the end of the final seven, when the righteous will rise and shine like the stars in the sky. Okay. That is what we are waiting for, a final Saturday, a final rest. Day. Now in the book of Isaiah, a book that Daniel's very familiar with, this idea that Jesus brings Jubilee, I don't want you to just take my word for it. I didn't come up with it. Isaiah did. Well, God did. Daniel's borrowing, I believe, this concept from Isaiah. The Messiah Jesus in Isaiah is described as bringing an ultimate Jubilee for God's people. An ultimate freedom year. Release, a time of release in which God's people are rescued from God's enemies and the enemies of God's people are brought into a time of judgment. We're still waiting for that. Listen to the words now from Isaiah 61, verse 1 and following. These are the words that the Messiah is speaking in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 61, some of the most important words in the Bible. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me. Because the Lord has anointed me. Think of Jesus, the Spirit coming down on him in his baptism. And then he goes out to preach good news. Anointed me to proclaim good news. Gospel. Literally, gospel. Isaiah. The word gospel comes from Isaiah. Good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. To proclaim freedom for the captives and release. The Jubilee language. From darkness, Isaiah 61.1, release from darkness for prisoners to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. To comfort all who mourn. That's how Isaiah starts this section. Comfort, comfort, Isaiah 40, verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people and speak tenderly to Jerusalem because her sins have been pardoned. That's Daniel 9. Where does comfort come? Comfort comes for forgiveness of sins. How does it happen? Jesus is cut off. He bears the transgressions of his people. In Isaiah 53. So this comfort is coming in this release year. Verse 3. And provide for all those who grieve in Zion to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. Verse 7. Instead of your shame, you will receive a double portion. Instead of disgrace, you will rejoice in your inheritance. And so you will inherit a double portion in your land, and everlasting joy will be yours. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrongdoing. In my faithfulness, I will reward my people and make an everlasting covenant with them. Jubilee means covenant that never ends. Jubilee means people will be righteous forever. Jubilee means everlasting joy. If everlasting joy is yours, you're not going to ever sorrow. Why does Jesus say, I'm going to wipe away all tears? Right? He returns. We can go on and on. But I just want you to see 
that Isaiah says the Messiah will be anointed by God's Spirit to proclaim a gospel message, good news, and he goes on to describe what's nothing less than a, a jubilee, a year of the Lord's favor, good news to poor people, sight for blind people, hearing healing for broken people, freedom for captives, release from prisoners in darkness, just like Israel was slave, saved from the darkness of Egypt, and an everlasting covenant for God's people where they will be righteous on that day. He also says they'll be restored to their inheritance, the land, except it's going to be better. There'll be a double portion. This idea that the Messiah will bring about an ultimate jubilee following his death, leading to a new creation, a new land, is everywhere in Isaiah 40 to 66. Everywhere. The pages just ooze with new creation, jubilee, hope. Maybe we'll preach that someday. Luke's gospel, though. Jesus, in Luke chapter 4, verses 14 to 21, which we don't have time to read, Jesus reads from this passage in Isaiah, in Luke 4. He sits down in the, the synagogue, and everybody's watching him, and he reads from Luke 4, and he, he, er, he reads from Isaiah 61 about the year of Jubilee, and then when he says, he, the, the Spirit of the Lord is on me, and he's anointed me to preach good news to the poor and all these things, and he shuts the book, and he says, I'm here. This is about me. Jubilee is here. Now what did Jesus do? Everywhere Jesus went, he gave sight to blind people. He forgave people's debts and sins. Your sins are forgiven. He released people from slavery to Satan through demon possession. He raised dead people. He reversed everything the first Adam did to destroy this world. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. I'm the dawning of a new creation. Breaking into darkness. That comes from Isaiah. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. The new creation is dawning. He proclaimed the good news of God's kingdom wherever he went. But that was only the beginning for Jesus. Ultimately, Jesus would deal with something far greater than blindness. Physical blindness. No, he was cut off for his people's sins. The Messiah will be cut off, but not for himself. No, as Isaiah says, he was, for he bore the sins of my people. For the transgressions of my people, he was stricken. He was cut off to set his people free, released from sin and death and Satan and hell forever. And on Sunday, to launch off the final seven, at the very dawn of the day, the tomb was filled with light. And Jesus rose. Into the darkness of the tomb, the light of the world shone forth. In the beginning was the Word. And Jesus walks out of that tomb, the first fruits of the new creation. His body released forever from death. He will never die again. Now, just a couple brief applications. Everything you and I do in this life, may it be done, friends, in view of our coming release day that has already been begun with Jesus' resurrection and will be completed when he returns. What does that mean? One practical thing is, let's not be a people who pile up stuff on earth. A radical redistribution is coming in the new creation. The more we give away here, the more we will receive there. The more, this is the Sermon on the Mount. The more earthly good we have here, the more we stock, the less, the more earthly good we have here, and the more we stockpile possessions and we, we hoard stuff and hold on to stuff, the more we have to lose on the day the Lord returns. So, do what Jesus says. Store up treasures in heaven. Hold everything with open hands. The fullness of our Jubilee day is coming when Jesus comes. Another application. Final one. As Christians, Jesus is our Jubilee. That means... You and I, we don't have to keep Sabbath 
on a literal day anymore. Not on a Saturday, not on a Sunday. Yes, rest is a good and wise thing for humans to participate in. But Sabbath is every day for Jesus' people. We are jubilee people. We've been set free from sin. And so we are people who are to release those who've sinned against us. We forgive 70 times 7, says Jesus. Why that? We forgive a jubilee amount. We, we, you release like it's the year of jubilee you release. That's what Jesus is saying. That's the jubilee he's bringing. We don't put each other in debt. We don't try to hurt people who have hurt us. No, we set them free because we've been forgiven. And the more you realize that Jesus has released you from your sins, the more you'll want to release others from their sins. That's the only way. If you're having trouble forgiving people for the way that they have hurt you, for just releasing it and trusting them to God as the judge... Friends, we all do from one day to the next. We want to hurt people with our words because they've hurt us. In Jesus, we can find release. He has released us from our sins. And we want to be a burden-lifting people. We want to share what we have in radical ways, redistributing resources so that everyone has enough to live. So if we see a need, that's why I talked about the Helping Hands Fund at the beginning. If we see a need around us, we as a church want to be a jubilee people. But only so that people can get a taste of the ultimate jubilee that is coming. The jubilee when the new creation reaches its fullness. We're still partway through that final seven. Waiting for the Saturday when... Jesus rests from his work of new creation. And heaven comes down. And all is complete. And all our sins will be done away forever. Yes, they've been paid for, but we will never sin again. As a people, we long for that day. Let's pray. Lord, I just pray that you would help us as your people, to be a jubilee people. Help us to walk in the freedom that Jesus purchased for us. And I ask that you would help us to lift burdens wherever we see them. Help us to release those who have sinned against us, to forgive. Help us to be generous with what we have, holding it with an open hand. Help us to be the light of the world a people set on fire by the dawn of a new creation, blazing for all to see with the goodness and glory of the kingdom of God. We just pray this all in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus. Amen.